Hello, fellow educators, and welcome to episode 55 of the Leaders of Literacy podcast. Today, my co-host Samantha Statler and colleague Brittany Fike have an exciting episode for you. Today, Samantha and Brittany are sitting down with instructional coaching expert Jim Knight to discuss some best practices around instructional coaching. Welcome to the Leaders of Literacy podcast, where we engage in educational conversations to strengthen early literacy in West Virginia. Are you ready to become a leader of literacy? Hello, listeners. I want to begin by thanking you for joining us today as my colleague, Brittany Fike, and I discuss instructional coaching. Brittany, I am so excited about the guests that we have joining us on today's show. Yes, Sam, thank you. I have been looking so forward to our podcast episode today, and I'm so excited to have Jim Knight here with us to share some of his expertise on instructional coaching. Jim, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. It's great to be here, and you need to lower your expectations. Research says you have a better time with low expectations, so if you just have (laughs) low expectations, we'll be in better shape. (laughs) Like Brittany said, welcome. Um, And before we get started, Jim, would you mind telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, So I was an English teacher. I studied English at the University of Toronto. I thought I was going to be a professor and uh, went into the doctoral program and did my comps and everything in English literature. And um, then I started teaching and was lucky enough to encounter some literacy strategies to help with writing, kind of a very direct instruction kind of approach. And they worked great. I came from the University of Kansas, and um, I was living in Toronto at the time, and I decided, well, I want to go to Kansas where these things came from. And at that time, at the University of Toronto, um, Michael Fullan was uh, studying, and he's a world-renowned expert on change. So I studied with Fullan and went to Kansas, started to study well, how do you help people learn these practices in a way that's empowering and not diminishing of them? And that's how it all started. All started with John Keats, and then it went downhill from there. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Jim, so one of the initiatives of the Early and Elementary Technical Assistance Center here in West Virginia is to host a coaching academy. And we've actually been doing this for four years now, and we use your research and findings um, to kind of guide our work with these instructional coaches. Um, But, you know, before we get too deep in the weeds here, um, we were hoping that maybe you could help define that term instructional coaching for our audience, because we know sometimes um, that term can take on several different meanings. Right. So I might do that in two different ways if this doesn't take too long. Um, First is our definition varies a little bit, but um, the core concepts are the same, that it's a partnership. So that means it's a teacher talking to a teacher and an instructional coach um, is helping teachers accomplish the goal that they set. And so it's not, I'm showing up to tell you what to do. It's like, as you look at, let's say we're looking at writing and I really want my kids to be able to organize their sentences more carefully or write more complete sentences or a variety of sentences, or I want them to have more voice in their writing or whatever it might be. And so then the coach helps the teacher set a goal and then the coach has expertise. And so they, uh, where appropriate, will share that expertise to help the teacher hit the goal. Often they'll video record the class so the teacher can look at the video and see what's happening in the class. Teacher gets to decide how they want to do it, but they get a clear picture of reality. Then they set a goal and they identify a strategy. 
And then the coach helps the teacher learn that strategy and then implement it and make adaptations. Because usually what you try doesn't work that well the first time. You have to make modifications. It might take quite a few modifications. So that's essentially it. It's a partnership. It's a person who has expertise, but they don't act like an expert. They're a teacher talking with a teacher. And they're helping the teacher accomplish a goal that matters deeply to the teacher. Now, in the broader picture of coaching, there's really sort of, there's probably many approaches, but I've narrowed it into three categories. One approach is facilitative coaching. Facilitative coaching is a coach who works from the assumption the person they're coaching already knows what they need to do. So if I want to clean out my closet, a facilitative coach, I got the expertise, I just have to get it organized or write a, write a proposal or whatever. There's all kinds of things where I already know what I need to do. And so the facilitative coach doesn't share expertise. And they, um, if they do, they would say they're not coaching anymore. A directive coach works from the perspective that my job is to help the teacher do it the way it's supposed to be done. And so they might observe the class and say, this is what I think you did right, and this is what you need to work on. Or they might be helping the teacher learn a particular kind of practice and do it effectively from the perspective of the coach. But what we know about human motivation is often people don't respond positively to being told what to do. And they don't really like it when somebody else picks the goal for them. People are usually motivated by their own kind of goal. So in between directive and and facilitative is dialogical coaching, which is the coach has the same expertise as a directive coach, but they share it in a way that honors the professional abilities of the teacher to make their own decisions. And they may not even have to tap into their expertise, but other times what they'll do is they'll say, is it okay with you if I share some things I'm thinking? And the thing is, the person's going to do what they're going to do. So you might as well just acknowledge up front. They may say yes, they may say no. So why not share that idea in a way that makes it easy for them to say yes or say no? So then you have a better chance of actually exploring it. But the, the dialogical coach is not telling the teacher what to do. They're helping the teacher hit their goal and they're sharing their expertise in a way that helps them hit the goal. And instructional coaching for me is dialogical coaching. What makes it different than say life coaching or other forms of facilitative coaching is that um, they have expertise that they can tap into when they need it. They're like a server at Cheesecake Factory. You know, it's like the menus, like 200 pages long. It's, it's like a 10 pound thing and they can help you work your way through it. They can help you make the choice. They don't tell you what to eat, but they know what's in there and they help you make a decision. And the instructional coach is a bit like that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, here in West Virginia, we are so fortunate to have a, a whole host of instructional coaches across our state who are working in a variety of capacities. And what we're working to do through the coaching academy is move them into that dialogical type coaching where it is a true partnership between the educator and the instructional coach. And, you know, especially since the pandemic hit, educational leaders are really making every effort possible to develop and implement strategies to better support teachers in all areas that they can. And so over the past year or two, um, we've really noticed an interest in instructional coaching positions rise significantly. What would you say is critical for a district or for an administrator to understand about the instructional coaching role before they decide to kind of adopt this model? Well, this is going to be probably a long answer, but um, 
I've got a book out called, they just released called The Definitive Guide to Instructional Coaching. It's built around seven success factors. And I would say all seven of those things are important. Um, And because it's an educational book, it has a Venn diagram up front. So first part of the Venn diagram is um, who I am. And so it's a set of beliefs and the communication skills and the leadership skills you use to be effective. And I think everybody really needs to understand the things that are related to there, related to a coach. And then second thing is what I do. And so the the coach has a process they follow and they know how to set goals with teachers and how to monitor progress towards those goals for the teacher. And so that means they understand either achievement or engagement data. Then they, they have a repertoire of teaching practices they can share to help the person hit their goal. Now that could be focused in one area, If it was writing, for example, maybe the assessment is something like thin slicing, or maybe it's more, more structured kind of assessment where they're really looking at exactly what the students wrote and they're going to have a repertoire of practices to help the teachers hit the goals. If you were using six traits, for example, because you have the national writers project assessment, then you would be maybe identifying one of those six traits you're going to focus in on, or maybe you're going to try to do all six, but you'd have some kind of rubric to assess progress. But ultimately, it's the teacher's goal that drives the whole thing. So I think you need to understand your process. You need to have a repertoire of practices. We call that the instructional playbook. These are our go-to. We know these things really work, and we can gather data. And then you work in a system that supports you. So I think everybody in the system really needs to understand those seven things. And you want to get to a point where the coach is just a part of the system. It's, just you, it's not like, oh, who is this? It's like everybody knows what coaching is. And they can go to that person and they can talk to them and they can work it through. I think if we wanted to zone in on what do administrators need to know, probably the most important thing is role clarity. What's a coach supposed to do and not supposed to do? Because if a coach is doing a million other things that the administrator doesn't want to do, he or she is not going to have any time to coach. And you want the coach to probably spend 70 or 80% of their time on doing a coaching cycle. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, thinking through... Like if a coach does walkthroughs, takes an enormous amount of time and it makes them look like an administrator and, um, and they're not administrators. They have a different role. They're a teacher talking with teachers. So I think clarity around the role and um, things like, is it going to be a confidential position? How do we ensure that the coach has time to do the job? Those are really critical things systemically. I'm so happy that you mentioned those seven success factors because your new book is a favorite here in our office and Sam and I will be um, having, Sam's holding up the book here. So um, Sam and I will be following up our conversation with a second podcast episode for our listeners where we're really going to dig into those seven success factors. So we're looking forward to that. Great. The book is pretty short. It's only 6,500 words. It's still a lot of words, but... um... Originally, it was like 100,000, and I cut it down by a third. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to keep that. I'm going to get rid of this thing I love and this thing I love. Um, but I wanted to create a book that anybody could read. So I think a principal who has a coach would be wise to at least skim the book to get a sense of what it is. And you could go, there's a little map at the start of each chapter, and then there's a summary at the end. So in about an hour, a coach could, a principal could skim it and say, well, I think I kind of got the idea now. And Ideally, they would read it. It's not that long. And it's, I try to write a pretty accessible book. But I think if we're going to invest in a full-time person in our school, probably to take a few hours to know what they do is really important. You know, and so that's the purpose of the book.
Yes. And just kind of, you know, to add on to that, most of our instructional coaches um, are school-based. So as far as that relationship between the principal and instructional coach, can you just kind of describe like what that should look like and why is that so important? And you kind of already hit on this a little bit. Right. Well, um, of course, every place is a little different. So how it plays out in one place is going to be different than another. But I've worked in settings where coaches work in two schools and I've interviewed the coaches and in one place they're just ripping it up. They're doing great stuff and they're worked off their feet. They just can't keep up. There's so much demand in other places, nothing's happening. And the difference is principal support. And so uh, the first thing is the principal needs to communicate that this is something they really believe in. It's important. In fact, some principals will have coaches of their own you know, a leadership coach or a life coach or something. And I learned this from Steve Barkley, but a coach can um, coach the principal in front of the staff in a staff meeting. So the principal does a model lesson and the coach video records the principal and then the principal um, shows a little bit of that lesson to the staff and, and then the coach takes the principal through a coaching conversation to set a goal. So the principal says, I'm not going to ask you to do something I wouldn't do. And if the principal says... The coach is going to coach my teaching. You might have a group of people who fold up their books when the duty day is over, but they'll stick around to watch that. They'll want to see what that looks like. So I think it's really important that the principal clearly believes in coaching and because people will do what their boss wants them to do. Even if they don't really like the boss, they still want the boss to, uh, to approve of what they do. And so if the principal says, this is a high priority, that we are a learning culture, we should all be engaged, coaching's important, I've got a coach, I'm gonna walk the talk, I'm gonna do it myself, I'm gonna watch myself on video. And then I think it's really important that the coach and principal meet frequently. Now it doesn't have to be a very long meeting, but they have to be on the same page because the principal goes into a teacher's classroom and says, um, how come you're doing that? That doesn't seem to be working. And it's something they learn from the coach. And the teacher's like, oh, I'm not going to work with that coach. Principal doesn't even like it. So they need, to be, they need to be on the same page. They need to be getting clear on kind of what's happening. And I, I think it's important that you have a policy around confidentiality and everybody knows the policy and then you live by it. And so if you say coaching is confidential, it needs to be confidential. If you say, here are the things I'll share, here are the things I won't share, you have to live by it. Because people can tell. They'll know if what you're saying, even unintentionally, They'll know if it's not honest. So there needs to be transparency about what gets shared and what doesn't get shared. And every system has to decide for themselves what it's going to be. But I would say what we would do when we've done it is we share who we're working with and what we're doing, but we don't share data on progress. We say, you can come and see the class and see for yourself. Or if you'd like to sit down and talk about progress, um, I'll let you and the teacher talk about it. And I'm, I'm happy to come if the teacher wants me there. But even there's value in writing a little statement that says, this is what we will and won't do. So then everybody knows, because everybody's a little nervous about, well, who's going to see this video if you use video or how's it going to go? So being clear about what's shared, what isn't shared, meeting frequently, even short meetings, being on the same page, coach being supported by the principal, those are all really important things. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, some of those things we find challenging at times, especially when we have someone new stepping into an instructional coaching role. And 
in some cases, um, those lead into the challenge of teachers or educators being resistant to work with an instructional coach. What small steps um, would you suggest that those coaches take to begin to sort of gain teacher buy-in when they're resistant in the beginning? Well, I think the first thing is to ask yourself, what am I doing that's causing the resistance? And I'm not even sure I'd use the word resistance. I don't think that makes sense. Um, and I'm influenced by Miller and Rolnick's book called Motivational Interviewing. What they say is they're talking about therapy, but what I'm helping the other person do is pursue what they want to pursue. So if I have helped a teacher set a powerful goal, it's going to make their life easier and help them reach more kids in a really clear way. And, um, it's going to make a real difference for kids. Well, the kids will be different next year because of the goal, what we call a powerful goal. There shouldn't be resistance because I'm helping the teacher do. And I, I say you want a goal that, and the goal is critical. You want a goal that, as uh, Jim Collins says, hits you in the gut. You know, it's the thing, the thing the teacher thinks about when she wakes up in the middle of the night. That's what's on her mind. And you want the teacher to look at you and go, man, if we could hit that goal, that would be great. So once you've got a goal the teacher really, really wants to hit, then that opens the door to what's going to happen. I think teachers are right to resist something that wastes their time. You know, why would we want to spend a whole bunch of time having conversations that don't lead? But to have coaching be powerful, then I think those seven things are important. They, they need to know what their beliefs are and how they communicate and how to lead. And they need to have a process they follow and understand teaching practices and um, understand how to gather data to make it really powerful. But if, it, if you're helping teachers make a difference and you're making their life easier and they and they feel affirmed by their interactions with you and sometimes if a coach is showing up and essentially communicating judgment you know and you can do it in really subtle ways like um you ever thought about doing this you know it's kind of like i'm a little bit better than you are if there's that feeling of i'm a little who wants to be in that one down position you know but if you feel this person sees me and believes in me and affirms me, and now we're working on the one thing that's driving me crazy, then, then it, it makes sense. So resistance, as Miller and Rolnick say, it involves two people. <laughs> you know, you can't have resistance all by yourself. And we make a mistake to say that teacher's resistant. It's really about the relationship. And what I should really be doing is, is setting up a situation where we're zoned in on the thing the teacher most wants to hit and they are really, they really can see that I have faith in them, that I believe in them and that I, and that I want what's best for them. Those things have to come through. But in, in terms of um, the challenge with that is people don't really believe it until they experience it. And so you can say, this is going to be great. It's going to be all those things, but nobody really believes until they experience. So starting with some, highly influential people in the school, informal leaders in the school, going to them and saying, look, I know if I work with you that you'll teach me how to be a better coach. And if people see me working with you, they'll want to work with other people because you're such a leader here. Would you be willing to work with me? And starting with the, not necessarily just starting with the weakest teachers, but start with the strong teachers. You want people lined up waiting to get to work with you. You don't have to go in and beg people to work with you. So starting with a few informal leaders and then having them communicate their successes, maybe in a staff meeting or something, but they need to be, you know, positive influences in the, in the system. 
people don't necessarily want to follow the lead of that person. That's probably not the best person to be a spokesperson. The best spokespeople are ones that everybody has a lot of respect for them. So those are some random thoughts. I really appreciate that perspective. And, you know, your comment about resistance taking two people really sticks with me because we know that that relationship building aspect is really at the foundation of a successful partnership. And um, one question that I really want to ask you is, um, how would you justify to some of our listeners who may have pushback against that um, building relationship aspect being so crucial and at the foundation of successful coaching in a world that's so data-driven and assessment-driven? Well, I'm writing an article right now. The title is Data is Not a Dirty Word. The trouble with assessment data is that sometimes um, it seems like the students don't matter. All that matters are the numbers. And sometimes it seems like we don't know the results until it's too late, you know, because it's kind of like a GPS that just tells you when you've arrived and doesn't tell you if you're, you're on track. So I think for data to be effective, we're working on a book called Data Rules, and it'll be in this article for the learning professional if they accept it. <laughs> and so the rules, rules for data for us are it needs to be uh, frequently gathered, like weekly at least, so you can see if it's working or not. And it needs to be chosen by the teacher, not forced on the teacher. And it, it needs to be reliable. This, the teacher and the coach have a shared understanding of what it means and how to gather it. And it needs to be really measuring what's really happening. It's not divorced from reality. And then ideally, it's gathered by the teacher, where you teacher might watch a video or look at student work and look for certain things. So, so I think data can be really, really helpful. In the worst case scenarios, data, um, I'll give you the negative and the positive really quickly, but in, in the worst case scenarios, data almost is used to shame teachers. You know, people, look at these scores. We need to do better. But there's no explanation of how to do better. It's just like things have to get better. Like I'm not already trying as hard as I can. Like I'm not lying awake at night worried about whether or not my kids are going to learn how to do this. I mean, it's I'm already doing all. If I knew what to do, I would do it. All you're doing is just making me feel bad because I don't know the scores. So to me, data, when it's used effectively, builds hope. Because data helps me set a goal I want to hit. And then what the coach does is help me identify a strategy to hit the goal. And hope involves where do I want to get to? How am I going to get there? And do I believe I can get there? So a goal or preferred future, pathways to the goal, and agency. So data is really important for that because data tells me what my goal is. And data tells me if I'm on track or off track doesn't have to be some big standardized test. It can be, um, you know, just uh, exit tickets, you know, if it's knowledge we're looking at, or rubric if we're looking at skills. But it's critical, but it needs to be in the service of developing hope, which is that it shows me that I'm making progress. It builds my agency because I can see I'm making results and it helps me set a goal. Then, then data can be really powerful. I guess the other thing I'd say, just I think in schools – people need to be working on improving in some way. That's a part of professional practices, continuous improvement. Um, what professionals do is they get better. You wouldn't want to go to a doctor who says, you know, I really haven't changed much in the last 10 years. You'd want to know that they're keeping up and they're improving. But I think people need to have a lot of choice on what they do. I think if you say you have to do this, this is the way you have to change, you're deprofessionalizing the profession. 
But if I think if coaching is a choice, then that's a better way of approaching. But but coaching is such a good choice because this is a person who affirms me and believes in me and helps me hit my goals and set my goals and uh, helps me reach more kids and saves me time. Who wouldn't want that? That's a that's a great thing. So I think, but I think if it's when it's forced, then you have a harder harder problem with that. Yeah. And I can definitely, you know, relate to being on that side of the the data shaming conversations as a classroom teacher. I spent seven years teaching first grade. Um, so I remember, you know, what that felt like um, hearing those things because, you know, we were aware of where our students were and it did kind of feel um, like there was a sense of hopelessness. So um, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And something else that stuck with me that you mentioned, you know, is making sure that the teachers, they have choice. And, and like you said, you know, what is waking that educator up at night? Like, what do they wake up thinking about? That's, you know, where they need to start. So I thought that was something really great that you mentioned. Mm. Um, you know, so we know that these relationships are at the foundation of our instructional coaching. And it's especially true when we are coaching educators. And sometimes as beginning coaches or maybe instructional coaches who are assigned to a new building or a new school, we see that relationship building aspect heavily focused on. But then at the end of the year, we realize that there wasn't a large impact made on that student learning. Um, So how can an instructional coach ensure like a balance between the relationship building and a coaching cycle, um, you know, particularly if that instructional coach is new to the school or maybe just new to that group of teachers. Well, I think the relationship's really built by setting and hitting goals. Um, I mean, nobody wants to waste their time. So you can listen and you can be nice to people and build emotional connections and um, be compassionate. But ultimately, when you work with a teacher and help her hit a goal, that's where the relationship built. A teacher and a coach I work with in Othello, Washington, uh, JC and Marcy, and JC was a teacher. And they hit a goal around writing. She wanted their kids to be able to write, um, I think, paragraphs, second graders. Anyway, they had a writing goal. And they hit the goal. And um, they had a rubric for what was supposed to happen in writing. The kids had to do it three times in a row to hit the goal. They hit the goal. And you can see in the video when they talk about how empowering it was for JC. And I said, so JC, now do you still see Marcy? Is she still in your school? And she's like, no, we're, we're in different schools now, but we see each other all the time. I said, what's it like when you see her? You know, you went through this process and you hit the goal. She said, it's like we climbed a mountain together. I think the real thing happens when you set the goal and you move forward. And I think a part of being an effective coach is to use the time efficiently. And so you know, we have a checklist for the impact cycle. I think you should sit down at the start of the coaching cycle with the teacher and say, let's talk through this whole cycle. When are we going to do it? How's it going to work? Then you follow up. You're really reliable in making it happen. So I think, you know, you, you can pretty quickly get going. If you're helping a teacher hit a goal that really matters and he or she starts to feel progress towards that goal, then the relationship's going to grow. I mean, every, every person's different. Every relationship's different, but that's my take. And it's really complex right now, but that would be my take. That's so important for us to keep in mind because I think oftentimes we see the misconception that relationship building and then goal setting and working through a coaching cycle are all these separate pieces. And really they're so intertwined together, just like you were saying that, you know, that process of goal setting and reaching that goal is also the relationship building aspect. I would just say I worry sometimes that if a coach is just starting, 
that it's, you know, whenever you change what you're doing, it takes you out of your comfort zone. And so a coach who hasn't ever done a coaching cycle can spend a lot of time building relationships, but it's really because they're not ready to take the step outside of their comfort zone and start doing the cycle, which means they probably don't know it well enough. It'd be ideal if they had a coach who could help them work it through. So uh, to me, the relationship building starts with the cycle. I mean, yes, you got to get to know the person, but you, you should be you should be into it within a one conversation, you know, and then, then you're just working your way through the process of helping the person identify what they really want to hit, helping them identify the strategy that brings them the most confidence, helping them get ready to try, helping them make adaptations. I make a distinction between push and pull coaching. So for me, push coaching is I'm trying to get you to do what I think you need to do. Pull coaching is you set a goal and I'm going to help you accomplish your goal. And if you think of trying to push a car up the hill or coasting down the hill, pull coaching is like it's pulled down by gravity. You're pulled forward by the goal. And that's what I'm trying to set up is pull versus push coaching. Yeah. And I think that really kind of leads into the, the next question we have for you. It's because we want our instructional coaches to really be comfortable and familiar with that coaching cycle so that they can see the most success when working with educators. What um, kind of strategies or techniques do you think also need to be in place in order for coaches to build their toolbox in order to best support educators? I know we talk a lot about the instructional playbook here and creating that playbook for use, but how should instructional coaches kind of work up to that? Well, um, you know, they need sufficient professional development. Um, it's a new job with new skills and new knowledge, and they need to have a chance to do that. And then they need to learn it in an embedded way, you know. And so just like teachers need coaches, coaches need coaches. So you want to set up a situation where essentially everybody has a coach. People might say, goodness gracious, everybody has a coach. How do we do that? Well, I don't know a more efficient way to do it, you know, because if a teacher needs a coach to learn how to teach some new teaching strategy, then a coach probably needs a coach to learn how to do whatever it is. But I think if I'm a leader of a coaching program or if I'm a coach guiding my own professional development, the seven success factors are kind of like a rubric. You know, what are my beliefs and how effective am I as a listener? What can I do? And you can just video record your conversation with your six-year-old and see what it looks like. You know, you can learn about the way you listen and ask questions pretty quickly. And, and then how do I manage my, you know, purpose and time? And there's simple things and about leadership. And then the, what's my coaching? Do I have a really clear understanding of a coaching cycle that helps a teacher set a goal? And do I have my questions I use? And I think initially there's this, uh, I forget which city it is, but there's a city in the United States where the bus drivers are told you can have four accidents a year. And uh, if you have an accident and it's one of your four, don't even give it a thought. You're going to have accidents. So it's okay. Just go out there and drive. We don't want you all worried about it. You don't have an accident, great. You got up to four a year. The bus drivers are able to take a risk. You know, they're like, okay, because they want, they don't want them slowing down, cut people off, move, keep it going. You have a responsibility to get people to their places on time. And to me, in a way, starting out as a coach, you're a learner. Your first couple cycles, you know, if you have to have the list of questions in front of you, have the list of questions, you have to have the checklist, you have to go back and check with somebody else. You just say to the person, just learning this. So, um, let's just work it out together. So I think you, 
your initial job as a coach is to learn how to be a coach. You can't be the best support possible for the teachers in the school unless you've learned the cycle. Yeah. Um, and I think too, just, you know, revisiting that transparency, like you said, especially for instructional coaches who um, are new to that position or, you know, new to that school and that group of teachers. I think just that transparency is so important for so many different reasons. Um, in your experience, what would you say is like the appropriate number or threshold even for coaches and teachers? So, um, first off, what we found is it's probably going to take six to eight weeks of time to hit a cycle, but it could be less and it could be more. That's an average. We found an average of about six weeks. Digital Promise said they found it was six to eight weeks. And um, but it's going to, you know, by the time you've set a goal and you've moved through it, but it could be a whole semester and it could be just a couple of weeks. It's going to depend on the kids and the teacher and uh, what works for the teacher. So that's the first thing. It's going to take you a fair chunk of time. Let's say it's on average six weeks. Second thing is you're probably going to need three to four hours per teacher to do the cycle because you're going to have to go to their classroom. You're going to have to have a conversation with them. You might watch video of the class or look at student work. You're probably going to prepare in some way to meet the person. So it's probably three hours might be underestimating, you know, but three to four hours. So let's say it's four hours. Well, if it's a 40 hour work week, then that means you've got 10 teachers you can work with if 100% of your time is spent on coaching. But if, if you're asked to do a million other things, and really only 25% of your time is like every time you give up four hours, that's one less teacher you can work with. That's the way I would put it. So 50% of your time is spent on coaching. Realistically, to move through a powerful learning cycle or the impact cycle, it's probably going to take you, it's probably going to take you four hours for each person. So if you only got 50% of your time, that's five, five teachers you could work with. Now, over a year, if every cycle is on an average six weeks and you work with 10, 10 teachers every six weeks, then you can, you know, get to quite a few teachers by the end of the year. But that's it, unless you keep repeating with the same teachers. That's the way I would see it. Um, you know, so as we kind of wrap up our episode with you today, um, you know, we have a, a wide variety of educators who listen to our podcast, district leaders, instructional coaches and teachers. Um, so with that in mind, do you have one kind of tip or piece of advice that you can leave our listeners who maybe are interested in, in investing in instructional coaching um, or just strengthening their current instructional coaching program? I think they need to keep those seven factors in mind. And if we wanted to get to the core of it, I think there, it's really about the old idea of seeing the world through the other person's eyes. I probably don't want to be told what to do. I probably would like to have someone who gives me choices at the same time if I'm stuck, it would help me if that person would respectfully help me learn some new things. I probably would really be grateful for somebody who truly sees the good I can do and truly affirms me. And, and I can tell they really want what's good for me, you know. That's why I think for coaches to be coached is really helpful because then they can, they can sort of see it from both sides. For episode show notes and transcripts, please visit our website at marshall.edu slash E-L-T-A-C slash podcast. Want to learn more about being a leader of literacy? Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single installment. In our next episode, Sam and Brittany are going to wrap up their conversation by focusing on those nine success factors for instructional coaching. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.